this morning. Um, we're in the Gospel of Luke uh, during this Advent season. So Ben began our time last week in Luke 1, and we'll be continuing in Luke 2 um, today. Advent comes from a Latin root, which means coming or arrival. And so the point of Advent is to look back upon the first coming of Jesus, to reflect and consider that God was faithful. He made some promises, and he fulfilled those promises in coming. And it also reminds us to look forward to the day that Jesus will come again. As he came, so he will come again. And so if we believe that he came, we can just assuredly know that he will come again. And that's where our hope, hope ultimately is. And so Advent communicates that God is extremely faithful, that he has been consistently faithful, that our reliance is on, on our faithfulness, but on trusting in his faithfulness. And so we're looking back, we're looking forward, we're in Luke 2. And we're going to jump into Luke 2, 1 through 7. I'm going to read, break it up into two sections. Let's do it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So, got two points for us this morning. The first comes from this text of the historical birth of Jesus drastically changes our hope. Um, this is a really important uh, a bit of information that Luke is providing for us. And so uh, if you go back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke or the biography of Luke, what you find is that he's writing to a specific person. That specific person, his name was uh, Theophilus. And so Luke is writing to this specific person to give him content about the history of uh, Jesus. And so in Luke 1.4, we read that uh, the context Theophilus, my hope is that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so he's trying to give clarity, certainty around the story of Jesus. And so Luke, if you didn't know, he was a doctor. What do we know about doctors? They care about details. And so Luke cared about details. And so when Luke introduced the historical movement that's happening here to Theophilus, uh, namely around Caesar, mainly around the edict, it verifies the importance of the moment. See, everything here is based upon history. And that's Luke's point. This nativity story is tethered to real time in real space. So this matters. If this is just a feel-good story, then it doesn't matter when it happened. We can just throw it into the category of once upon a time, if the design is just to be a feel-good story. But that's not what Luke's doing here. He's trying to put a time stamp upon this moment and say, because there's a time stamp, it means something to us. See, if it, uh, if it, but if it both provides hope to our heart, our broken world, and has a time stamp wrapped in history, maybe this is the gospel we are all actually longing for. So hear this if you hear anything. If Jesus really did come, really did die and rise, and I believe that he did, it changes everything we view about God, his faithfulness, and hope. So Luke is communicating that this real story and real history and a real city that's really 6,437 miles from here, that it really happened. And so we meet a guy named Caesar Augustus. Everybody say Caesar Augustus. Thank you. So any history buffs in here? Wow. 
No, no, Hamilton, man, it's just, it's just like, what, what are we even? So 2,000 years ago, didn't know I had to do this for everybody, so 2,000 years ago, Rome ruled the known world, okay? The known world at the time, Rome ruled it. And so Rome's genesis began in the 8th century uh, near Tiber River, and it began to develop and grow as time went on. And to its peak, Rome ruled... Uh, the most of continental Europe, uh, Britain, uh, Western Asia, Northern uh, Africa, and even the Mediterranean islands. And so Rome, as you can see, ruled the known world at its peak. And so if you fast forward to the first century, there was a guy named Julius Caesar. He's one of the most, I think Forbes has him as like the top 10 most influential people in human history. And so Julius Caesar was that, and he was a part of the, the storyline of Rome creating a, such dominance in their day. And on the Ides of March, he was murdered in 44 BC. You still tracking with me? We're talking about Rome. We're talking about Julius Caesar. And so 15 years later, a guy named Octavian, who took on the name Augustus, Okay, we're now entering into the storyline here of history. He became the sole emperor of Rome and all of its provinces. And so we can meet, uh, I wanted to introduce you to Caesar Augustus real quick. His bust should be here, right there. And so that's Caesar, that's your boy, that's Augustus. That's who we're talking about here in the nativity story. So Augustus was a big deal. He ruled for 56 years. He was the great nephew of yours truly, Julius Caesar, still tracking with me? And Julius Caesar adopted Augustus into his family, became the first Roman emperor. The month of August was named after who? Yeah, there you go, guys. And so history.com, let's go a little further. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, history.com says this, Augustus led Rome's transformation from republic to empire. During the tumultuous years following the assassination of his great uncle, he shrewdly combined military might, institution building, and lawmaking to become Rome's sole ruler, laying the foundations of the 200-year Pax Romana, Roman peace, and an empire that lasted in various forms for nearly 1,500 years. Augustus Caesar died in AD 14. His empire secured and at peace. He reported last word, his reported last words were twofold to his subjects. He said, and the one that matters is, I found Rome of clay, I leave it to you of marble. So this seemingly powerful king, powerful Caesar of this day, who ruled the most dominant empire of their time, God used like a pawn in his hand to bring about the arrival of the Messiah. So we read this story, and there's so much happening here. This powerful one just so happens to call an edict in this moment when Mary happened to be with child to bring everybody back to their original cities. It is this guy who put forth a census decree, and this is the mesmerizing, mesmerizing part of the story, that God moved upon Caesar to call forth an edict for a census, which set the stage for the Messiah to be born in this nowhereville place called Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5.2, which says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, uh, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of old, from ancient days. Now you think Mary 
riding on that donkey with Braxton Hicks going down? Do you think that she's thinking that God's at work in this moment? Surely no. You think that in all the the frustration of getting to Bethlehem and the implications of that, the confusion around the whole scandal that's taking place, you think there's questions of God's faithfulness in that? Surely. But God was at work in this. Spurgeon goes on to say about this, Charles Spurgeon, he says, It may seem to some of you a strange thing that there should be an imperial edict issued from Rome, which should have an important influence upon the place of birth of the child. Yet I do not doubt that in God's esteem, the whole of the great Roman Empire was a very small account in comparison with his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today, the thrones and dominions of the mightiest monarchs are only like the small cogs of the wheel of divine providence, where the welfare of even the least of the Lord's people is concerned. He reckons not events according to their apparent importance. The standard of the sanctuary is a very different measure from that which worldlings use. When any purpose of God is to be accomplished, all other things will be subordinated to it. And God is at work. God was at work in this moment, and God is at work. So often we have no idea what God is doing, wondering if there's any hope at all. But Advent reminds us that God is faithful and he's at work. The historical birth of Jesus drastically changes our hope, and upon that foundation we build in verse verse 4 through 7. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room, no place for them in the inn. Second point we see here is that she gave birth to God. 2-7 here is pretty scandalous. It's pretty shocking. It's pretty mysterious. And before we get into it, we have to be reminded of the context that Ben led us through last week. And so an angel appeared to a teenage girl. We don't know where she was, but he appeared to this girl, and he said some pretty ridiculous things. He said, you're going to bear a son. She's a virgin. He, he said that you're going to call his name Jesus, which means the Lord God he saves. He says that he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. He will receive the throne of the uh, promised one, David. He will reign on this throne forever. And of this kingdom, there will be no end. So she gets all of this information. And, and so this isn't just some other kid that's going to come up on the scene. There's a significance to this child. See, Mary was a virgin, so the pregnancy would have been supernatural. The same God who created the heavens and the earth overshadowed Mary, and she was now with child. The child is holy, the Son of God. Not created, but eternally the Son of God. The one who created all things now dwelt inside of her. Echoing what the gospel writer John says, that the one that was in the beginning created all things is now, uh, uh, has flesh um, and is within her. St. Augustine said, the word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The maker of the sun was made under the sun. He who fills the world lays in a manger, great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. This was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor was his tininess overcome by his greatness. 
So she carries this child for nine months. You've got to imagine, she's um, just recounting that moment with that angel. That there's one great inside of me. His name is Jesus. His kingdom will have no end. He is the eternal son of God. And so now with that context, we see she gives birth to this child and lays him in a manger. It's nothing less than astonishing, friends. No child of a king, no child of a prince, no child of royalty, no child of a president would arrive like this. You better believe that the grandchild of a president or the great-grandchild of the queen ain't getting treatment like this, right? Like they're going to be, all the stops are pulled out. And yet, there's a kingdom which is superior to England and to America. A kingdom that will have no end. And that king's mother had no place to deliver her baby. It communicates so much to us about God. She gave birth to him in a barn and laid him in a feeding trough, which is where animals eat. No paparazzi, no red carpets, no one knew and no one really cared. The arrival of this king took place with such ridiculous humility. Though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was a king, he served. Though he was the greatest, he made himself the servant of all. There's a book called The Song of the Stars by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, it's marvelous. It's kind of a recap of the story that we're reading now and some high points and quotes that she said uh, in the book. She says, the one who made us has, some, has come, wow, has come to, it's not even up there, so I don't have to worry. Uh, I had some mis- misquotes on here. So the one who made us has come to live with us. Heaven's son is now sleeping under the stars that he made. Just putting imagery, allowing our imagination to be mindful of what's happening in this moment. See, God becoming human is astonishing. There's a theological term that's used uh, about this moment, and it's called the incarnation. The incarnation. And and Thomas Oden, a theologian, he says that the the, uh, incarnation in the fullness of time is this, that the eternal son assumed human nature without ceasing to be God. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And so to use our imagination, it's like thinking about the sun. You're not allowed to look at the sun very long, right? If you do, it hurts you, especially during eclipse time. You have to wear weird glasses. And so it's like putting the the blazing sun and all of its magnitude for what it is for us in our solar system. It's like putting it into a flashlight. It's like, you can't do that. It's like putting the Niagara Falls in a thimble. Like, you just can't do that, and yet we can, we can much easier imagine God becoming human than we can the sun being put into a flashlight, but it's ridiculous. Fully God, fully man. We confess this in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit and he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. It's ridiculous to think that this is happening in this moment. She gave birth to her firstborn son. See, God has come and he's entered into our story to bring about good news of great joy for all people. The great church uh, father, Athanasius, saying that, Athanasius said, he became what we are that he might make us what he is. Jesus has come. She gave birth 
to God. And to push this a little further, it's not like God and us are like a, a hierarchy where you have like kind of the first floor and then you have the second floor of kind of privilege and power. That's not the way it works in a Hebrew mind. In a Greek mind, it does. You, you have different levels in mythology of gods, uh, but in the Hebrew mind, it was God infinitely above everything that's created. And so to consider it like this, we, um, we should relate to God like Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. When's the last time you read Hamlet? Anybody in the last, like, two years? You read it, buddy? When did you read it? At school. That's my son. Sweet. Um, <laughs> should have known. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Hamlet is a great tragedy that Shakespeare wrote. Uh, it's got characters. It's got ghosts. It's got murder. All the good stuff. But what we don't know about in Hamlet is about the creator, Shakespeare. Like we don't know, we know about a lot of different characters, but we don't know about Shakespeare. What we can only know about the playwriter is to the degree that the playwriter shows himself in a play. And so because we don't know anything about Shakespeare, it's because he didn't put himself into the story. Likewise, God, as it were, looked into the world he had made, saw our lostness, and had compassion upon us. So he, by his grace, wrote himself into our story as the main character. So now we know much about the creator. She gave birth to God. See, here in this historical moment, we find awe, we find wonder, we find grace and hope and empathy and peace. We find good news of great joy for all the people. And it's interesting, it's so easy, we have to be so careful because we can ride through this season of Advent and just keep the dust on the cover of the story and not allow its color to come to life again. It's hard for us to hear the same story every year and not become numb to it. And we have to be intentional to recognize that there is significant mystery in the glory of this season. And it's so easy to just move through it. But man, this season is a gift to us to take a step back and say, man, God is faithful. He showed up in ways that are unimaginable. And he's doing it now. He is continuing to do the same even here. I'll land here. I've been prepping um, for an upcoming series on the book of Revelation that we're going to be doing next spring. And uh, the story in Luke is, is sweet. The story in Luke is, is heartwarming. We have a similar story in the book of Revelation that is epic and like battle language and powerful and profound. Um, in Revelation, it's not Revelations, it's Revelation. It's one revelation that John got from Jesus. And so in the context of this story, we find that, that John is on a island called Patmos. It's a prison island. And it's written in about 90 AD. John was one of the youngest disciples that Jesus had. And so he lived the longest out of all of the disciples. And so 85 years after this moment that we just read, after Jesus had came and he died and he rose and he ascended, he sent his spirit and the church exploded. And then eventually Rome doubled down upon Christianity. And they began to persecute Christians. At this time, there were Christians that were burned at stakes because of their faith in 
Jesus. And so John was imprisoned because of Jesus, and he gets this vision. And in this vision, it's, we're going to get into all the details in the spring, so I'm not going to recap how you should read the book of Revelation, but, but I would say there's like windows that he gets. It's not chronological, it's not linear, that's how we see things in the West, but it's these random pictures that John sees, and in one of those pictures, he gets this picture of what happens when Jesus is born. Let's read it. It's a little different. Notice the differences and similarities that we find that we just read. In Revelation 12, very last book of the Bible, verse 1 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven horns, I'm sorry, seven heads and ten horns. No pitchfork, different picture, that's Saturday Night Live, this is different. Uh, Ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her son, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And this war breaks out. You know, Satan knows. He's well aware he is the dragon. Spoiler alert. So he is the dragon. So he wants to destroy said child because if he does, he will be victorious. This is God pulling out all the stops to bring about victory and to redeem and restore this broken world. And so he's trying to destroy this child. And we see that she gives birth to him. This imagery, we see it, it hooks our imagination. It's another side of the same story. There's so much more to the story than what Luke tells us. This image provokes us, it grabs our souls, and it reminds us of something that Luke's narrative doesn't. See, we are, I've said this multiple times in the last several months, that we are in a great tale. We are in a great story. And there is an evil evil dragon, and he wants to destroy your life. He came to steal. He came to kill. And he came to destroy. And we don't want to give him an inch because he will destroy our lives. We are under enchantment. And yet there is a noble king who has come, who has entered into our story as a baby and will break this enchantment and will cut off the dragon's head. He will overcome sin, death, and the dragon. And he will come again and he shall reign forever and ever. And we lean into that story in this season. We lean into the fact that we're part of something much bigger than our little individualistic pursuit with our little individualistic dreams. We are a part of the story of God. And this story of her giving birth to God reminds us of the story that we are a part of. Something much bigger, much greater, much more grandiose than what we realize. Friends, there is an enemy trying to destroy your life. And yet King Jesus is on the throne and he is reigning and he is orchestrating all things, culminating to the point where he will come again. He will slay the dragon and he will be victorious. And what I know about it, amen, fits there. It does. It can fit there. Um, What I know about us is we easily forget and we easily settle in to our own narrative, 
and we easily settle in to our own puny little story that doesn't bring meaning, doesn't bring satisfaction, doesn't bring the, the, the design that the story is, is, is ought to pre- uh, bring to us. And we're reminded of this story that we're part of that. We're reminded of the story that we're part of this dragon-slaying story where the king has come to ransom us. This is what Marvel's been pointing to all along. This is what the Disney stories have been pointing to all along. They're just mere shadows of our reality that we're living in. And I just want to invite us this morning to be called higher, to know that God has come. He has come. And he has shown victory. And it's like D-Day has occurred, but the war is not over, and we are still a part of that. And I invite us to not settle in the season. I invite us to not kind of sit back as if we're not in a war, but to lean in, and to lean into the invitation that Jesus has for us, to engage the world not fighting with flesh and blood. No, that's not how we fight, but with integrity and character and humility and prayer and love. That's the kingdom of Jesus, and that's what we're invited into as the family of God. So the history that we see in this narrative, that Jesus really came. And that timestamp reminds us that we are a part of the story. We see that she gave birth to God. And the story isn't over. We're smack dab in the middle of it. Man, I hope it ends soon. Maranatha, that's how Revelation ends. Come, Lord Jesus. So we long for that. We don't settle for what this world offers. There's something greater that we lean into together. And we're reminded of that. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We remember there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you haven't left us. We give you thanks that the story isn't over. Lord, charge our hearts. Provide courage to us. I know each of us are carrying different weights and things in our lives and we can begin to wonder at times where you are. We can begin to ask the question, are you really faithful? Lord, allow Advent to be oxygen to our souls today. You came in real time. You gave, she gave birth to God, and everything is now changed. We bless your name. Amen. Uh, and the aisles are baskets. <laughs>